Good afternoon, everyone. I think we're going to try to get started. The topic of the session this afternoon is InsureTech Hype, Technology is Not Threatening Your Workforce, Poor Leadership Is. The title really intrigued me, and I'm guessing that's why you are here as well. And given all that we've learned at the convention so far, including AI and InsureTech and all the trends, it's worth considering for a moment, what is the role of the actuary and my team in the future? And how can I position myself to be effective and to lead in a changing world? Our speaker today can speak about this with authority. He's a partner at True North Partners with over 14 years experience with large financial organizations with projects across risk, finance, and strategy. Currently, he's focused on the intersection between financial services and emerging technologies, including InsureTech and FinTech. He has been involved as a mentor in global accelerators and is also a speaker at global risk and technology conferences. Please help me to welcome Dimitri Anagnostopoulos. Thank you. Innovation is our commitment. My team is not really skilled for these tasks. We are a company you can trust. We keep allowing for the same mistakes over and over for the past, what, 15 years. We make things happen. These are some pretty tough decisions. No executive will actually make them. We are a people-centric organization. There is no communication between our departments. <clears throat> the disconnect between the two worlds is obvious. Do you recognize the worlds? The world of executives. The world of strategy. The world of marketing. And the other one the world of office floor realities. It is, of course, very important to set values, aspirations, and communicate these values to your company. But it's also very important not to let these just become marketing statements, what people would like to hear, sometimes what our own ears would like to hear. It's very important to understand how do we actually operationalize these concepts in the office floor. Now, leadership is about motivating people, creating inspiration, Developing trust in the company's values. Now, when I say trust in the values, I don't mean trust in the words that we put on the wall. And sometimes it feels to me that some companies overdo it with the concept of just putting words on the wall. And the more words we put on the wall, I think the further we are from these concepts. It's as if we put them up to remind us what we don't experience. Because at the end of the day, we do not convince ourselves about trust, about excellence, about innovation. We breathe these concepts when we come into the office because of how we feel with our everyday job, because of the collaboration we actually have with our colleagues, because of the service we do provide to our clients and the feedback that we receive, because of the efficiencies that, again, we do experience on the office floor. Now, in order for us to experience these values, everybody in the organization needs to actually practice them, starting, of course, from the top. Efficiency 
is one of these concepts, is a concept you practice at an individual level, the team level, department, cluster, so that it can become part of the culture of the organization. Now, we all know that our organizations are not efficient. We can throw as much technology as we want or as we can afford in an organization. We can six sigma our organizations to death. And we can still be as inefficient as we can be. Because we really need to realize that organizations are run by people, not by tools. So when we're talking about efficiency, we also need to realize that efficiency is a mindset, it is not a tool. It is the mindset of always challenging ourselves, always learning, always try to grow and improve things. And this is what we should be focusing as well when training our people, how to have efficiency mindsets. But we don't do that. What do we do? We give them tasks. We tell them that to do. Sometimes the tasks are non-value-adding, really, activities, or part of an inefficient process. And then we forget about them until the next technology is around to replace them. We need to realize that the problem that most organizations have is actually behavioral. It is not about the tech. What we don't realize is that our foundations, our education, our credentials is just a foundation. So the question is, how does it happen that we bring people into the corporate world and we actually manage to put them into a flat learning curve and sometimes in a declining learning curve? Now, of course, as employers, we know when we bring people into the corporate environment, we need to train them, we need to upskill them, we need to help them grow. What we don't know is what exactly does that really mean? We don't realize, for example, what skills our positions really require. And I'm talking about real-world skills outside of the foundation that we have. I'm going to come back to that point. We don't differentiate between our people's strengths and weaknesses. In that room, we all have very strong credentials, actuarial degrees, economics, finance, engineering. But we're all good in different things. So we cannot just expect all of us to perform well in the same tasks. And lastly, we don't know what motivates people. And I'm not talking about financial motivation and bonus payments. I'm talking about what excites people. What Siobhan mentioned yesterday in one of the sessions, not about what's going to take you out of bed. Your salary will take you out of bed. But what will make you jump on your bed every morning? Now, again, very similar credentials, all of us in this room. So if we go to an interview, we will probably tick all the requirements. But the tasks that are actually very exciting for me might be the most boring thing in the world for you, and vice versa. So we cannot just expect everyone to perform equally for the same tasks. And what we're doing without, if we don't realize and we don't actually focus on that is that we're creating an ecosystem of inefficiencies which I'm going to talk to later on. Now, I spoke about real-world skills. The difference between the, our foundations and real-world skills is what it actually takes to be successful. Let me illustrate. It's a very different thing as a foundation to know how to follow a cookbook and be even able to cook like a chef. But it's a very different thing to be able to run a successful restaurant. 
location, PR, marketing. You need to actually be able to cook random recipes in bulk with good quality, on time. You need to manage inventory and wastage, manage your suppliers, quality of your supplies, prices of the supplies, which are actually moving and are volatile on a daily basis, not just on a seasonal basis. You get the point. Let me bring it back into the corporate world. It's a very different thing to know how to use Excel very well and even be a good modeler or a programmer. And a very different thing to be able to actually develop a successful planning tool or a forecasting tool. A successful tool is something that actually people will use, not something that will end up in a drawer. So for you to do that, you need to understand who's the key stakeholders, who's going to use it, what are they expecting? Are they expecting from the forecasting tool to just predict the future? Technically, they're asking for a crystal ball. Or are they asking for a tool that they can make predictions about the future, which means have levers and parameters so that they can actually look whether they need to take actions for mitigating issues? And then you, then you need to say and see how often are we going to use it? Is it on a monthly basis? Is it a rolling forecast? So then I need to choose the right level of granularity. And once I've done that, I need to choose for each and every line of the income statement and balance sheets chosen what methodology I'm going to use. And I need to take the whole organization and all the departments involved through that journey. Because I can actually sit in a room and build a fantastic model. Very powerful, very complex. No one will believe in the numbers or no one will know how to use it. That's not a successful tool. And in, the, and in the exact same manner, it's a very different thing for all of us to know how to use PowerPoint and actually build effective presentations. Again, who's attending the meeting? How many people? What are the seniority? How technical are they? How, how long is going to be their deck? Are you going to follow an inductive or a deductive approach? Alignment, colors, a lot of things that can completely confuse an audience. All of that has nothing to do with the foundations, actually, the strong foundations that we all have. So this is now where I'm talking that about we're creating an, eco an ecosystem of inefficiencies, and this is actually what threatens the workforce. If I were to, to put it more simply, if the organization, because it's inefficient, is not meeting its targets, we're all on the same boat. There's not much distinction. The issue is that if we don't understand what problem we're trying to solve, we're not going to be choosing the right solution. Now, especially these days where InsurTech and FinTech ecosystem are expanding so rapidly, we have a lot more solutions and ideas out there than the whole market can actually absorb, let alone your own company. So it's very easy to fall in love with a solution. But again, we need to really understand what problem we're actually trying to solve. I'll give an example of two of my favorite areas. All my clients at this stage, they're looking to automate their monthly management reports. Not regulatory reporting, so let's park that for now. Management reporting. And because of my involvement in the InsurTech and FinTech ecosystem, I usually get the question, do I know any good companies that actually do neural language and robotic solutions that we can actually automate these reports? And in all cases, I'm trying to convince my clients not to spend that money and not to get down this route. At least not yet. I'll explain why. I work very closely with retail, finance, risk departments. And I know very well from experience that reporting, management reporting, in a large organization looks like this. 
This is still going on, isn't it? Yeah, I can tell. I can tell because many of you look like your whole career is passing in front of your eyes. <laughs> Reporting is not your job's objective. Reporting is a tool that should help you to meet the organization's goals and objectives. Now, in the corporate world, this is commonly referred to as analysis paralysis, to which I respectfully disagree, because there is no analysis in these reports. This is data dumping on PowerPoint slides. So yes, it is paralysis, but because of data overload. So please remember that data is useless. Unless, of course, you manage to analyze them properly, understand them, clean them properly, and manage to find actually proper mitigating actions or at least direction of what you need to do. So if we now go and apply artificial intelligence to automate these reports, all we're going to be doing is arriving at our mistakes faster. So will it be artificial? Yes. Intelligence? Not so much. I really think we should actually create a new buzzword and revert the acronym. We need to start talking about IA, intelligence automation. You do not need 50 and 80 or 100 pages of management reports on a monthly basis, reports that only tell you the symptoms, not the problems. Declining revenue is a symptom. If your client attrition is going up, it's a symptom. And we spend so much time in putting these reports and pages together that we have forgotten what it takes to actually go and understand the problem. We're putting all that effort together for reports that nobody actually reads. And if you ask the people, why don't you cut some of that? Why don't you just stick to executive summaries? What they will tell you is that no, because executives need the detail. Well, I can tell you now, executives do not need the detail, or they shouldn't need the detail. If they do need the detail, it means that they're operating at least two levels below their seniority. So they need the detail either because they don't get the executive summary or the analysis because nobody has time to put it, or they don't trust it. It's one of the two. In one of the projects that we did, we were looking at efficiencies across different jurisdictions and countries. And the one common theme that kept coming up was around reporting, and specifically a monthly report just above 100 pages, and sometimes more. And everybody was complaining about the report. It was taking people's time from each and every Africa country, all the way to the head office, people consolidating numbers, people adding numbers, and all the way up to the head office to the holding company. And everybody pointed up to an executive who said, why don't you stop it? Why don't you actually protest and stop it? They said, no, there's a particular executive that really demands that report. And as good consultants, we, all, we went all the way to the top. And we spoke with the executives. Now, I was expecting an answer of, yes, I don't really have time to read it on a monthly basis. No. His response were actually even more astonishing. He goes, Dimitri, do you know how many times I have asked for this report to stop? Think about it. We have created so many 
positions of people actually putting a lot of effort, sometimes 60, 70, 80% of the effort, to just work on that report. And are you asking for this report to stop? Are you technically asking for people to make themselves redundant? Because it's not going to happen. Let me give you my second example. You know very well how these days big data can help you understand your clients and even come closer to your clients, and these days a little too close. We live in a digital world. Everything we do leaves a digital trail, from our purchases at a barcode level, our everyday movements because our cell phones are being used as trackers, at an activity level, and whether we did our 10,000 steps, which we send to our insurers through wearables, even to what our body fluids are doing with swallables. Brilliant technologies out there. We're going to be doing things we haven't even invented yet from a monitoring point of view. Now, because of all that data, the new word in the buzz these days is, of course, artificial intelligence and machine learning, and how AI and machine learning can help us transform the organization. Now, again, we need to be very careful because transformation is a very big word. It's an umbrella term that can mean anything and nothing. And if we don't really understand it, we're not going to be achieving much of it. I mean, with artificial intelligence and machine learning, we can potentially get the answer to life, the universe, and everything. And as we all know from the Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy, this answer is going to be 42. Thank you. So, if you don't know what exactly question we're asking, what problem we're trying to solve, what data we throw into that model, and where even we're going to use that number, it's not going to be very helpful, is it? I mean, let's look at it practically. What are we trying to do with AI and machine learning? We want to be able to go from being descriptive and backward-looking all the way to be forward-looking, proactive, and even predictive. Now, this is called the analytics maturity curve. And certainly, if we manage to be predictive, we're going to have a competitive advantage. But the important axis here is the horizontal axis. It doesn't say AI and machine learning, does it? It says complexity. Because we really need to understand, first of all, where we are on that curve, and then we need to evaluate what is actually keeping us there. A few examples, legacy systems. Insufficient data libraries and dictionaries, lack of interfaces between systems, manual processes, lack of communication between departments. I can go on on that list, and I'm still not going to use AI and machine learning as lack of being able to ride along the curve. And also, if you take any process, you really need to understand where predictive modeling is actually warranted and is going to be valuable. There's a lot of other places in the process where you simply want to do portfolio analysis. So we need, again, to be very careful on how we want to apply these tools. One of my clients, talking now about transformation, he's heading the MIN analytics department. This is a retail department of a large financial institution. His complaint is the following. He goes, Dimitri, I do not understand how, in the era where analytical capabilities are advancing so fast, where my department should have been the most exciting job in the world for any analytical person out there, 
And yet again, my team and myself feel like our careers are falling back every single day that goes by. It's actually an astonishing complaint if you think about it. He says, what are we here to do? We're here to actually develop intelligence and analysis and valuable insights for the business to serve our clients in the best possible way. What does that mean? The right product, at the right customer, at the right time, on the right platform, through the right message, through the right representative, and so on and so on. What do we do every day? We get swamped with so much data extracts and so much data analysis requests, and up to here it's fine, that's what we're here to do. Analysis requests to solve problems. The problem is that all these requests are unfortunately for half-baked solutions. Why? Because the reports are coming across the organization from its segment, its product house, its department, its function, they're all trying to solve more or less the same angle, talking about customers. But everybody's just taking a tiny bite of that problem. And that tiny bite refers just to the small sphere of influence, which is the influence of their department only, because nobody goes beyond. It's the whole silo mentality that you've all heard about. So we do not really help the organization go anywhere, let alone transform itself. Now, we are recipients of all that data, and we have an end-to-end -end view. And when we do get some time, we step back and we try to put some valuable piece of analysis together. And then we gather the business and we tell them, this is what we found, please try it out. Because we need the feedback. This is where we need the feedback to improve ourselves as an analytics department. Guess what the answer is, always? No, we haven't tried it. Either because they weren't diligent enough or we didn't really know what to do with it, or we had other mandates from the top or other priorities. So we cannot even have any feedback of, was that analysis useful? Do we need to change anything in our way of thinking, in our algorithms? We go nowhere. Now, the complaint continues. Guess what is our new mandate from the top? That we need to develop our internal AI and machine learning capabilities to transform the organization. For what? And when I say for what, of course, AI and machine learning and, pre and predictive modeling can give us insight, but it will not teach us problem solving, it will not teach us a collaboration, it will not teach us execution. Alan, yesterday in the plenary session, he said that, yeah, you need to have strong executives actually making sure you have strong sponsors, but they cannot just be in one vertical of the business. Because he also mentioned that then they go to the business and say, you have 72 hours to actually figure out how you're going to use it. Otherwise, it's not going to be very helpful. So again, technology cannot solve the cultural issues of the organization. For that, we need to focus on people. And we spoke again about real-world skills. So let me take the reporting example. Reports that should be telling you the symptoms should be something very, very quickly. As soon as your data is available, you should spend a few hours putting these reports together. Maybe a day, but definitely not 20 days or 25 days. And these are real numbers. Then what you have to do is actually go and understand and decompose the problems, figure out where the problem lies and the end-to-end -end process. Then you want to do some deep dive analysis because you want to understand the materiality of each process. You don't want to go down the rabbit hole and put so much effort to solve 1% or 2% of the problem. Ideally, you want to attack 70% or 80% of the problem. 
Of course, you will realize that the problem doesn't sit in one area, regardless of which department you are that started that decomposition. So you need to identify everybody that is either part of the problem or they could be part of the solution and that they can help you. And then you need to be able to bring them all on the same table because you need to be able to have a constructive discussion and debate. This is not about pointing fingers, whose fault it is. This is how you can all work together to actually solve the same problem. Ultimately, it's probably relating to your customers. Now, you need to be able to have even convincing skills. You might need to put some business plans together. You need to convince them to put some effort over and above their business as usual to help you. Now, you're doing all that, or you need to do all that, while you're maneuvering through the organization's politics and personal agendas and personal behaviors and personal egos and every other challenge as you know it in the everyday office floor. And once you do all that, of course, you need to execute concrete steps with all the commitment and the buy-in that you got from everybody else because it's not going to be your department only. And then, of course, you need to test the results. Now, again, you're operating in very complex environments, so you need to actually really understand what drivers are you going to be monitoring because just the results, they might have changed for all sorts of other reasons other than what you just executed. Now, again, reporting is not your job's objective. And I really mean that we have an army of people that are just doing that, even data stitching, not even effective reporting. We should be focusing on problem decomposition, consulting skills, analytical skills, understanding of problems, communication skills, people skills, behavioral skills, so that we can actually help the organization go forward. But we don't do that. We all know that. This is also only one of the, of the areas of the problems. I still see management in the misconception of the more checks, the better. And the more checks you have, the more you're ensuring that mistakes are going to go unnoticed. Why? Because the first person doesn't really need to be super diligent because there are nine others after them that will, they will check. The last person doesn't need to be super diligent either because there were nine others before them. We do not put responsibility and accountability where it really needs to be, so we just load it with, with people to do the same job. But nobody is really responsible and accountable. This is what we need to be teaching people. Our employees should be the ones complaining about non-value-adding activities. They should be complaining about why are we stitching data together as opposed to doing that side. But they don't. The vast majority of our employees are actually seeing all these technologies and efficiencies as a threat only and not as an opportunity because we have long left them in performing non-value-adding activities and unfortunately now they have become habits. And habits are very difficult to change. And unfortunately, technology cannot change people's habits, not on its own, and definitely not overnight. It's not a magical solution. You're going to apply a new tool and all of a sudden people change. Over time, yes. And let's also be very careful because technology hasn't changed some aspects of people's habits either. Let me illustrate. You all know the complaints about this picture. Alan again mentioned it in the plenary session. 
how, tech, how the mobile phone technology has penetrated our lives, and now we're all becoming antisocial because we're always looking at a screen. There's a very big difference, though, when the complaint is about a restaurant with a couple or a coffee shop with a bunch of friends that is nobody talking to each other and everybody's on their phone. And there's a very big difference if the complaint is about what seems to be a waiting spot. Because if that is the case, well, I will argue why has anything changed since a hundred years ago? That's what we like to do when we are among strangers. Technology hasn't changed that habit or that behavior, it just enhanced it. We have different capabilities with a phone versus a newspaper. So to change these behaviors and to change habits, we need strong people to lead that change. Why? Because at a theoretical level, we all agree. We all agree that change is important, we all want to change for the better and improve. The problem, of course, comes when we all need to step back from the crowd and actually start thinking that we also need to change. And that's why we need strong people to lead that. The problem is that these people are typically very difficult to find. You remember the perception a few years ago, just before the global financial crisis, that organizations are too big to fail. Well, forget too big to fail. Organizations are too big to change. Not because you don't have enough areas to look after, but because there's only so much change that you can actually achieve in the short term. And if you couple that with people change, behavioral change, habits, and so on, then that's going to start feeling more like you're trying to change a plane's engine. Well, while on flight. So change is coming, it's inevitable, and as we all know from nature, across the centuries, it hasn't been the most intelligent or the strongest species that survived, it has been the ones that were most adaptable to change. Now, we spoke about habits being a big obstacle to change, but it's not the only one. We must not underestimate the power of experience because experience can sometimes be your biggest enemy to change. <clears throat> Our minds work in a very certain way. They get locked into a position, they get locked into a way of thinking, and once they do that, it's actually very difficult to change the way we're thinking. Last year, I was talking at a global risk conference, and Kostas Markidis was also there. He's a professor at the London Business School. So he played a game with the audience, and I was part of the audience, to demonstrate exactly that, that your brain can be locked in a way of thinking. So he gave us a four-letter word. He has hidden the first letter. The word was many, so the M was missing. So he asked the audience, put up your hands when you have figured out the word. Within one to three seconds, all the hands were in the air. So he asked one person in the audience, what was the word? They said, many. Great. Do you all agree? Yes, what is the word? Repeat the word for me, many. Repeat it again, many, and everybody kept repeating the word. I said, great. And then he gave us a second word, same principles, four letters, the first one was missing. The word was deny, the D was missing. So he said again, put your hands up. The first hand came up in three seconds, all the way to 15 seconds where people were putting their hands up. So Costas goes, what just happened? 
It took you three to five times longer to figure out the word. What did you all do? You went Benny, Denny, Kenny, Lenny, Manny. You, you used the whole alphabet. You realized, of course, that it's not working because you had to change the pronunciation because it's not Denny, it's deny. And why did you do that? Because I managed to lock your brains, temporarily, of course, into the previous pronunciation. And how long did it take me to do that? Approximately 20 seconds. So can you imagine now what 20 years of experience can do to your brains and your way of thinking? When was the last time that you tried to do things differently? When was the last time that you've asked your people to do things differently? When was the last time that you've actually showed people how to challenge themselves and try to do things differently? We spent all that effort and all that money in order to try to give tools to our people to become more efficient. And we're forgetting a very important thing, that efficiency is a mindset, it is not a tool. We have an army of people that are doing day in and day out non-value-adding activities, and when we don't achieve our results at the financial level, what do we do? We look for talent outside the organization. Go and check any of the HR strategies out there. I'm pretty sure that on the top level, on the top three to five bullets, you will read talent acquisition. And again, we are forgetting a very important thing. Anybody can make the mistake and join your company. I'm kidding. <laughs> well, am I kidding? Because more than 30 to 40 years of psychological studies have shown that an organization's culture and an organization's environment can actually influence one's behavior and one's performance by up to 70%. That means that in the wrong environment, your own skills and your own performance can actually only count for 30. To put it differently, an organization's environment can actually destroy talent very, very quickly. And this is where we're failing as leaders. Because we're failing to actually teach people what efficiency mindsets are, to challenge their own work, to keep learning, to keep growing. Stop telling people what to do. Tell people what you want to achieve and try to see if they can do it better, faster, more efficient. We don't do that. We give them tools thinking that just technology will change their mindset. It doesn't work like this. It actually worked the other way around. If you think about it, a couple of years ago, when technology was cheaper and people could actually do it easier, what happened? What did we see? People had to leave the corporate world and go on their own, and what did they do? They created valuable insurtech and fintech solutions. And now they're coming back to the organization, try to partner with us, or sell it to us. So it is very important that when we choose solutions and when we try to fix problems, that we really understand what problem we're solving for. Let's not forget that organizations are run by people. They're not run by tools. If we're talking about people and you want to lead people, people are led 
with actions, not just with words and marketing statements. Change is very important, but change is also difficult because we've created habits. So focus on people, give them valuable tasks to do and show them how to do them, how to challenge themselves and what improvement is. Now, I want to close this session with a slightly different note. It is very easy to point all of that towards leadership, and rightly so, because they have a very big play in all of that. But by doing this, what we also do, which we like, it is part of the human nature, is actually we're pointing the finger to just someone else. And this is very dangerous, because then sometimes we forget our own responsibilities. And why it's dangerous? Because we are actually all part of this problem. We all get used to our own way of thinking and our own ways of doing things. Solon, he was an Athenian statesman, lawmaker, poet and philosopher, one of the seven sages of ancient Greece. He said, Γυράσκω δαί πολλά διδασκόμενος, which translates to, I grow old ever learning many things, or I constantly learn more. This is a phrase commonly attribute, misattributed to Socrates. Learning, growing, and of course by learning challenging yourself, is an ever-ending state of mind. And we actually need to take ownership of that. Yes, we might find ourselves under poor leadership, more than once, but this is also the era of information. There's no excuse anymore. Earlier this year, you probably all know that, President Obama was in the country. He gave a speech to honor Mandela's day in Johannesburg. So I want to remind you a tiny bit of his speech. And I quote him. Madiba would not have sustained that hope had he been alone in this struggle, and not referring to the support he got from the ANC and the freedom fighters, but referring to all those people across South Africa and across the world and across all races. People who in the most difficult times kept working on behalf of his vision. And that is why, he said, we do not just need one leader. And we do not just need one inspiration. We need a collective spirit and effort. Now it is this collective spirit and effort that Obama was talking about that actually brings the responsibility back to all of us. The moment we see any technology, efficiency, solution out there as a threat only and not as an opportunity, that means that also somewhere along the lines and along the way, we also became too comfortable with the present. Too comfortable in our current position. Safety in numbers of a big organization. Became too comfortable with our current success. Too comfortable with the status quo that just suits us at the time. And we forget to see the, inev the inevitable, that change is coming. So I urge you all to take ownership of your change, regardless of the seniority level that you're in. Thank you very much for your time.
Thank you, Dimitri. We will now take questions from the floor. While we wait for some questions, um, I have a, one question. Have you had examples of the successful implementation of this at one of your clients? And can you tell us about the process and the results? I have to think hard. <laughs> when we've actually seen success, and this is not success within the whole organization, but at least in departments, is that when people do get involved and try to look at how to disrupt these activities, at a, sorry, this, the inefficiencies at an activity level. A lot of times sitting with, with clients and sitting with teams and asking them, take us through, take us through what you're doing. And this, you all know that, moving columns, changing formulas on a monthly basis. And it's a simple question, why don't you automate all of that? You, you don't need a system, you really need to just ask Excel to do it for you. If the formulas become too heavy, put it on VBA, someone can help you. Of course, we're helping them as well on the side. But nobody has actually put people in the position to think, you're trying to go from A to B. Why are you going like that? It was a very interesting learning in my very early days as a, as a consultant. I sat with a very experienced guy. He was mostly into, into coding. I was trying to do uh, different things, very little code involved, because I'm not so much at the technical level. So he sees my work, he says, Dimitri, you have a very big problem. I say, okay, I'm all ears. He said, you are a very keen and hard worker. I'm like, why is this a problem? Because you fail to just step back before you start and actually strategize a bit and think how you can get from A to B. You're so keen that the moment I give you something, you just go heads on and you will solve it. And your job is actually great, but it took you at least three to four times more to do it. And he actually said something quite, uh, quite interesting. He says, you have a very dangerous combination if you don't change it now. Too eager to do the work done without strategizing. So the best combination I've seen is extremely ambitious people, and it's important to be ambitious, but also extremely lazy because they will find the best way and the shorter way to go and do it. So become a little bit lazier, lazier but don't lose the ambition. And we're failing a lot. So when, when, when we go and look at examples like that, we try to put people, just step back. What are you trying to do? No, but I've been doing that forever. Well, now it's time to change. But have you ever actually questioned yourself? But they need to understand also what does that mean? How would I do that? This is what I've been asked to do. So it, it's, it's at a personal level before it becomes slowly and grows into the whole organization or even a whole department. And, and that's why it's important to make people understand. When you tell them, guys, be more efficient. What does that mean next day? I'm sitting in my desk and someone told me from a beautiful session that I need to be now more efficient. Okay, I still need to produce these reports that everybody's asking for, because first, they need to stop asking for their reports. But how are we gonna do that? If you go and now take an executive summary only and present it to executives, even if it's the best analysis and the one that they need, guess what? They're also human, they're also habits. They're not gonna like it. They will still ask for the details. So you need to think, what is the process? Let me give you both. Unfortunately, it means double working. 
I'll do the big pack, and I'll show you the five pages as well that you need. It will probably take, what, a couple of iterations, a couple of months, when they can actually get the trust that one second, these five pages is actually all that pack. That's brilliant. Guys, thank you. I don't need that anymore. It's not going to happen just because you're going to do it once. You, we need to understand the process of how change can be effective. The mics are coming. Just keep your hands raised, please. Thank you. Uh, I'm Johan from Old Mutual. Uh, so I'm curious about the statistic you quoted of uh, performance being affected by up to 70%. Uh, where does that come from uh, and how did they get to it? One study, one study that they did, they compared actually performance of stockbrokers in the New York Stock Exchange. And what they monitored is top-tier stockbrokers that were actually featured in magazines. And what they did after a while, they actually left the big companies and they went on their own or went to smaller companies to continue the success. And one of the findings was that they actually went, well, I, don't, I don't remember if it was straight to the bottom, but definitely their performance really, really dropped. And they started inferring that it was not just them. They were working actually in very good environments, very efficient environments, and that the whole organization was very much a foundation of their success. That was one of the studies actually that, that informed these numbers. Hi, Dimitri. Thank you so much for your presentation. I enjoyed that. My question is around practicality. Now, I'm thinking now you are a leader of an organization and you are realizing as a result of this presentation that you must understand the problem. The question is then, how long does it take to understand the problem? And how practical is it for you as a leader to go before your shareholders or your board who understand and see the impact of technology where, for example, it could be eating into your market share and you're actually saying it to them that, look, our competitor is doing well because of this and that technology which we haven't yet implemented. And they ask you, what are you doing? And you respond by saying, I'm still understanding the problem. It could be tricky. So how long does understanding the problem take and how can a leader manage that? And linked to that, could it be that technology in itself, even as we identify the problem there, that what we are automating is the same things that have created the problem, in fact, that technology enables us to get to the problems quicker, giving us more time to think deeper and hence understand the problem quicker? The, the quick answer is potentially yes. <laughs> around which technology you're going to use for which problem and how it can help you actually understanding the problem. But you touched on a very interesting situation, which is the conflict that you have between your shareholders and what you really need to do in your business before you meet their requests. Now, this comes down to the problem of who is your primary customer. And it's very easy for anybody to say, well, your shareholders are at the end of the day. Yes, but in the short term, in the next 6, 12 months, 18 months, you might need to shift 
the importance of your, sta of your stakeholders. It doesn't mean that, you will, that you're not actually working for, for your shareholders, but if you're saying, we're going to go to become a customer-centric organization, so we need a good 12 to 18 months, understand where we're wrong, and we need to serve our, our customers in the best possible way. <coughs> it's easier said than done. And if you go actually and look at most of the strategies I'm seeing there, they all say customer focus, customer centric, customer comes first. And this is when I'm starting asking very interesting questions. So you have two choices here. NIR. There's a lot of bad fees that we all incur when we actually misbehave, miss a debit order, unauthorized overdraft. Now, with all that technology and messaging, you can actually tell me that I'm going slowly as in, to an unauthorized overdraft. And you know that if I hit that, I'm going to get a charge. Now, you can tell me that. And when I asked department heads, are you going to use that? Are you going to try to inform and educate your clients not to hit that threshold? Because that's client centricity for me. That's you looking after me. You know I've been hit by... 250, 300, 500 runs a month every now and then because I'm actually a little bit all over the place. Guess what the answer is always? Not really, because that means that we're not going to get that NIR. So you need to really decide now, in the short term, who are you actually serving? Because it's one thing to say, we're serving our client. No, you're not. If you had an opportunity to actually serve me and teach me how to not incur bad charges, I would greatly appreciate it, but no, because your shareholders are saying, I don't want to see that NIR dropping. So it's actually a very important piece for the shareholders as well to be on the same page of how long it will take for them to see the returns. If they're pushing you for returns now, that means you cannot probably focus the resources on your long-term or medium-term strategy. So it's that imbalance that actually can make that difference. You're asking about, for example, time. When we're doing an NII, NIR deep dive, client attrition deep dives, because a lot of that, what I saw about what we're not doing, at the end of the day, this is what we do as consultants. S some projects are anything from four to six weeks. More complex one, we might ask for 10 weeks, not 10 months, at least to have a good end-to-end -end view, a good materiality map of where the problem really originates. Now, of course, the actions might be taking longer, depending on what you find. But again, for you to put these resources to understand, unpack the problem, you need to still go back and understand that imbalance. And it's not going to be always the same. If you look at case studies of where companies have actually decided to shift the priority of who is the primary customer, some of them have shareholders, some of them have customers or other. One example comes to mind from case studies is McDonald's. Back in the 80s, McDonald's said our primary customer is the landlords and the franchisees, the people who actually want to open the business. Their menu was blunt and the same. But what they managed to do is I think they had a 1,300 stores opening on a monthly basis, something ridiculous like that. Because the primary customer, which was landlords and People that wanted to open a business, they were all going straight for that business. And they managed that. In the nine, end of 90s, 2000, 2001, 2002, when everything was going down with the financial crisis, 
back then with the recession, when they saw revenue going down, they changed the strategy. They said, no, our primary customer now is our real clients, the one who come in and actually order food. So they started changing their menus. So they went into countries, created customized recipes. They came into Greece, they started following the religious calendar. They went into Portugal, they had soups that actually met. Them. So they did that shift when the environment changed, but they were very true. When they said, my customer is the real customer or someone else, they focused all their efforts there. There were two additional examples from the pharmaceutical industry. Uh, one was Pfizer, the other one, can't remember the name. They both found in one of the drugs that it was actually creating cardiovascular issues. So the one company said, we're going to pull that drug out because customer comes first. And they pulled it out. I think it was $2 billion that they actually lost from that strategy. But it was very clear. This is who we're serving. Same issue, different company. They said, no, our shareholders comes first. So they got FDA approval that they can still, if they put the warning, it's still within the reasonable expectation of the, of the FDA, and they actually kept the drug in the market. Shareholders come first. They were both successful in what they were, they were doing. They just decided which one to lose. So that, that timing and understanding of what the investors' expectations are can actually be very much conflicting in what you're trying to do. And they need to understand that they might actually, if, they don't get the, if you don't get your long-term targets, how are they going to get their returns? Any last questions? Thank you very much. Great. So just just before we close the session, um, just in terms of timing, lunch will be from 1 until 10 to 2, so 13.50. So the next concurrent session will start at 13.50 to 14.45. We'll then have transfer time, and that reverts to the normal time. The closing plenary is starting at 5 minutes to 3. Um, I would like to thank Dimitri today for really challenging our, us with new ideas of uh, efficiency is not a tool, it's a mindset and really understanding the people and giving them valuable problems to solve. So thank you so much, Dimitri.